Job chapter 11, and uh, this is now, uh, it turns to a guy named Zophar. Zophar takes a turn at attacking Job. I mean, what kind of friends would you want to have where one after another looks for their opportunity to tear into you? And that these are friends of Job, all right? Now, Job's, Job doesn't get any grace from anybody, but especially Zophar. The other, the other men, Bildad, uh, it, these guys are uh, Eliphaz. They, um, they're kind of dancing around dealing with Job, but Zophar, like, he's, he's like a, uh, I guess it would be something that Scott would understand. He's a, he's a fighter that just goes to, to knock you flat within the first minute of the fight. This is how Zophar is. Zophar doesn't mince words. He goes right at Job and tears him to shreds. So, uh, talking about this thing, these three friends are not ignorant men. They're not stupid, okay? They, they know about creation. They know about the flood. They know about God. They know about life. These aren't uh, they aren't ignorant men. They're probably very wealthy men, and nobody usually gets wealthy unless it's handed to them uh, by being lazy. These men, they understand the ins and outs of life, but they are blind. They're very blind to three very important things. When they look at Job, they are blind to the fact that he could be under demonic attack. When you see somebody and they, their life seems to be falling apart, remember, it might be the devil. Now, maybe they created their own problem. But with Job, they are ignorant of the fact that it's not God that's against them. It is the devil. Does the devil love anybody in this room? He does not. So these men are blind uh, to demonic attack against Job and his family. They're blind to the needs of Job beyond rebuke. Do we sometimes need rebuke? Yes or no? Yes. But you know... That's not a way of life. You just you don't want to be constantly rebuked. Job needed something more than just a rebuke, and they are blind. These three friends are blind to their own self-righteousness. What is probably the hardest sin to convince people of is self-righteousness. So these men are so good at finding fault with Job, but they never look at themselves. So up until all of this happened to Job, they probably were Job's best friends. They probably... Often, were the best kind of people that Job liked being around. But now, they have taken a side against Job as self-appointed judges. They believe they can sit and decide what he has done wrong. And, and that's not the best kind of friend that you want to have in your life. They believe that Job is deserving of all of the troubles that happened in his life. And they are an Old Testament example of what a Pharisee was in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were despised by the common man because the Pharisees were only good at pointing out flaws. They were good at pointing out, that is an unsavory person. That person should not be near you. You allowed that woman to touch you. That was how these men were. Zophar is going to be the most aggressive and sharp tongue so far. Probably the youngest of the three, probably the oldest, and then the next, and then the youngest. Now, he's not a teenager, but he's definitely not mature. Now, in chapter 9 and 10, Job has poured out his heart for maybe 30, 45 minutes 
he's poured out in anguish, crying out. If you read it, he doesn't ask his friends for why. He asks God, why? What are you doing in my life? And God does not answer him. So Zophar says, well, I'll answer for God. We're going to learn about that. All right, so let's start here. <clears throat> Zophar tears at Job. Not tears, tears. Uh, look at chapter 11, verse 1. I want to read these first four verses. Then answered Zophar the Namathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? Who's he talking to? Job. I mean, should your lies be allowed to make you feel like you're right and we'd stay quiet? He goes on. And when thou mockest, should no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in thine eyes. This is rough because Zophar asks, shouldn't we answer all of Job's words? Shouldn't, shouldn't we say something? Should we just let him be right? Have you ever felt like somebody is, is talking away and you feel like, I gotta correct him. A corrector. Well, that same spirit was in Zophar, and it's not a good spirit. Um, he says, Should Job's lies silence us as if they're pure wisdom? Should Job be able to mock God and not be rebuked and made ashamed of himself? You see, he says Job believes his doctrine is true. And he believes that he is clear from error. And the truth is. This really upsets Zophar. Why would it upset? Listen, this is not a, a debate where I, I and, and, and uh, uh, Dean are, we're, we're having coffee. He's having hot chocolate. You're not allowed to have coffee yet, are you? <laughs> anyway, we have, <laughs> we're having a cup of coffee and we're having a discussion and maybe we're in a disagreement. But we're, we're discussing and disagreeing as peers. But if you not only lost your job, but your car's blown up. No, you don't have a car, but the car's blown up. Uh, uh, your best friend is dead. Um, I'm just going, but we're trying to compare to Job. Um, uh, every bit of money you have is gone. Your health is bad. And then I just want to debate you. I just want to prove you're wrong. That's how Job is being attacked. This is not a, just a discussion and a debate or a difference of opinion. Job crying out, saying, God, why, upsets Zophar. And let me ask you this. Why do we often feel like we have to say something when someone is going through trouble? Sometimes, what is the best thing to do when you're around somebody who's crying? Say nothing. Just weep with them that weep, the Bible says. Why do we almost always want to make people know they're wrong? Anybody want to answer that? Why do we want to make sure somebody else is wrong? What do you think, Marcus? Our ego. I like that. What else? Hmm? Our pride. We really, the truth is, we don't care about them. We only care. I feel better being above so Zophar is tearing at Job. And listen, let me tell you, think about how hard it was for Job to respond to these men and these men to respond to him without a Bible. I'm glad I can quote and go back to the Bible and say, 
I'm just going to trust Romans 8.28. I'm just going to trust this verse and that verse. They didn't have that. So it was even more painful. So he now, he steps in, in verse 11, he thinks that he's got to speak for God. Verse 5. But oh, that God would speak. Can you hear him like a, like a Shakespearean actor? Oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, Job, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. What a statement. I mean, he actually says, if only God would speak to you, Job, he would speak against you. That would really encourage me to want to pray, amen? <laughs> that would encourage, oh, read this Bible and God will show you everything that's wrong in your life. That wouldn't encourage me to read my Bible. But that's how Zophar is, is dealing with Job. He says, God would show you just how ignorant you are. And I have to admit, every time I read the Bible, I have to admit, I'm pretty ignorant, amen? There's so much, every, if you ever read your Bible through, every time you read it, it's like they put new pages in there. It's like, I never saw that before. Does, is it, am I the only one that ever does that? It's like it's alive. It is a book that you, you figure out, man, I did never see that before. He says, God's going to show you how ignorant you are of wisdom. Now, Job's pretty smart. But Zophar is accusing him of, You're, you don't have any wisdom. God has, would show you the secrets of wisdom. Now, here's the point. He's, he's saying that you are ignorant of God's wisdom, and Job, you're ignorant of, uh, that, that you are not getting what you deserve. Ow. Now, I believe that. But it's not nice to be reminded of it. If I came to Bill and he got fired, I'd say, well, you deserve a lot worse than that. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. Now, how many of us understand wisdom? How many of us have great wisdom? We don't. So, so far is true, but is it, is it truth spoken in love? Is it truth that helps? So you can't be right and very destructive. Let's go on. So far feels so compelled to speak as if he was God. So be very careful when you feel like, I've got to say something. You better think twice, because I have found that everyone feels qualified to criticize. So few feel qualified to help. You know, Pastor, I couldn't do that. Pastor, I couldn't preach. Pastor, I couldn't sing. Pastor, I couldn't help do this. But you always feel qualified to criticize. <laughs> you know, that went on too long. Oh, well, you know, she was off key. Uh, the spirit of Zophar is here today. He then moves on, reminds us just how infinite God is. And that's, again, a lot of what jo, jo, Zophar says and does is not wrong, but it sure doesn't help. Let's go look at verse 7. Canst thou, he's talking to Job, and he says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he cut off and shut up or gather together, then who can hinder God? For he knoweth. Well, let me just stop there. 
When he begins to talk, Zophar is talking about how infinite God is. He says, Job, can you really figure out God? Because if you do read his past discussions with, with Eliphaz and Bildad and, and he's just cried out saying, God, I'm trying to understand you. Zophar mocks him and says, do you think you can really understand God? And I believe that. I believe you cannot understand God. There are things that happen that you know what you're going to have to say? I have no answer why. There are loads of things that happen in life and in the world. I cannot speak and say, oh, this is why that happens. And so Zophar, telling a truth again, he says, can you really precisely, perfectly understand God? And I believe it's not possible. You can study physics all your life. You can study astronomy. You can look for God in nature. And guess what? You will not find God there. You can try to understand the depths of the human psyche and you will not find God there. Where is God? He's outside of his creation. He has, he has, um, he, what the word is, he transcends. He is bigger. Now, all Zophar can compare the wisdom of God to is to the size of the earth. And so he goes on and he says, you can't find him out. You can't perfectly know him. He knows that the wisdom and the knowledge of God is high as the heaven is above the earth. It is as deep as, there's your word, hell. It is longer than the width of the earth. Now, did Zophar know how big the earth is? I think those guys, this is just after the flood, I think those guys were not stupid. The, the, the people who built the pyramids were not just piling bricks on top of each other. They built things precisely to orientate uh, with, with the stars, and Stonehenge was designed to identify on winter solstice when the sun would rise, when the moon would be at, at, uh, um, uh, eclipsed. Those guys were smart. I think that they understood a lot more about the universe than what we give them credit for. And he says, the wisdom and the knowledge of God if you were to pile books upon books upon books, you could fill up the earth and it would, not, it would not explain all of the wisdom of God. And he says, broader than the width of the ocean. So far, is he true? Is he right? There is, there is, there is no one, no school, no theology that just explains God. That's why my dad wouldn't believe in him. My dad, to the day he died, and I talked to him, he says, nope, we'll never know God. If there is a God, we can't understand him. Therefore, I don't need to know him. That was his cop-out. And that's a shame, because he wants us to know him, doesn't he? He actually closes, he says, God's decisions are absolute. It's uh, pretty, um, it's pretty, um, uh, it's pretty definitive. He says, um, where did I stop there? Verse 10, if he cuts off a life and shuts somebody up like he's done with Job, or gathers together, builds him up, then who can hinder him? You can't argue with God, but I want you to go to Isaiah 45. You're in Job, go to the right, find Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 19. <clears throat> I'll start with Weston on the back there. Isaiah 45, 19.
Okay, it's a long verse, but he says, I didn't just speak it into the air that I want you to seek me. I didn't say it in vain. Does God want us to seek him? Yes, he does. Let's go to another one. Go to Jeremiah 29. Uh, Gavin, Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. Wow, okay. So does he invite us to actually try to understand him a little bit more than we currently do? And to find him. Kind of interesting. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Naomi, do you mind? Naomi. Naomi, do you mind reading? All right. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. And watch Paul's use of, of the word knowledge and know. Philippians 3, 8, 9, and 10. Before you read on, what, would, what did he call excellent? Mm -mm. Look in the middle there. I count all things but loss for the excellency of, of the knowledge of Christ. I can't compare what I know about Jesus with anything else that I currently own. As a matter of fact, anything that I had, it's like dung. Keep going. Verse, verse 9. <clears throat> Keep going. Verse 10. Amen. Well, I wish it was comfortable, but it means conformable. <laughs> conformable means to be like him, even in death. So, what does he want in verse 10? What is his one desire? Now, he's a Christian. At this point, he's a follower of Jesus for maybe 20 to maybe 25 years, and he says, I still want to what? I just want to know him. All right, so that Zophar never encourages Job to get to know. He just bashes him and says, you don't know. What a way to talk. Sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? So uh, let's go to the next one. Verse 11 to 14, back in Job. Chapter 11, verses 11 to 14. I mean, Job chapter 11, verses 11 to 14. So Zophar continues and he says, For he, God, knoweth vain men. When God looks at this world, what kind of people does he see? Vain people. He seeth wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt, out of control. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands towards him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. Just hold there for a second. And I want you to see um, uh, Zophar 
Well, let me go on. Let me keep reading down to verse 4. Uh, did I? Yeah, I did read 14. Good. All right. So, Zophar ends with a pretty good explanation of how to get right with God. He has basically told Job, Job, you're, you're ignorant. Job, you're deserving of this. As a matter of fact, you haven't, had, you haven't got half of what you deserve as a wicked man. Imagine a friend talking to you like that. And so he says, listen, Job, let me tell you how to get right. And I want you to pay attention to this because Zophar is not wrong in what he's about to say. Let's look at the first thing he says. He says, first of all, you need to admit that all of humanity is vain and wicked. Go back there to verse uh, 12, and he says, well, verse 11, he says, he knows vain men. That's all God sees. All we think about is ourself. God sees wickedness also, and he considers it. Verse 12, vain men would be wise. That's what we want, though we're born like a wild ass's colt, full of rebellion. So he actually is like what you, if you ever give the gospel, what's the first thing you want to convince people of? That they're sinners. He says, you know, if you want to get right, you're going to have to admit you're wrong. You know, Job, if you want to get right, you have to admit you're vain, you're wicked. <laughs> All right, so um, what, is, what does Romans 3.10 say? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So he starts off... He gives you a good plan on how to tell people how to get right with God. Admit that you, along with all humanity, is vain and wicked. Secondly, he actually encourages, he says, yet you can get right. Because he says, verse 13, he says, but if thou prepare thine heart, stretch out thine hands toward, toward God. If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away. And let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. He's actually giving him some hope and saying, you know, you can get right with God. Now, is there anybody that cannot get right with God? Dead people cannot get right with God. Amen? <laughs> so don't pray for rest in peace for somebody who's already dead. Sorry, if they have not gotten saved before they breathed their last breath, it's over. Only the living can get right with God. But is there anybody else that cannot get right with God? Okay, um, but it's, I believe it's impossible for anybody right now to commit that because nobody knows how to do it, all right? But let's just say there, there are Saul of Tarsuses out there that look impossible. Do you think the other Christians, do you think Peter, James, John, and the other believers looked at Saul and said, I'm going to believe God that he gets saved? Do you think anybody ever prayed for Saul to get saved? I don't believe so. I think they wrote him off. I think they said, he'll never get saved, and he did, amen? So, it is true. Can you not imagine the hope that you could give to somebody who just the night before shot up with heroin and says, I'm too far gone. You are not too far gone because Saul of Tarsus got saved. Who else got saved? Uh, who else got right with God? I think of adulterous David got right with God. When was the last time an adulterous man was rebuked and said, you know, you're right. I did wrong and I should die. The fact is, it may be rare, but it happened, didn't it, with David? Uh, go to 1 Kings chapter 21. Go to the left, find 1 Kings chapter 21. First Kings chapter 21. I'll read this for time. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. But there was none like unto, and you ought to circle his name because it is a wicked man. Look at it. 
there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard these words, that he rent his clothes. He put on sack, put sackcloth upon his flesh, and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went, I like those words, he went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Even wicked Ahab got back right with God. That's unbelievable. But you know, when you go soul winning, if you ever give the gospel, you hand a gospel out to somebody, you usually are believing this person gets saved, this person gets saved. But then you meet somebody who maybe was a bully to you. You meet somebody who maybe was on TV and blaspheming God. There's a guy, there are two men who do a, a, some sort of a magic show. Somebody in pen. What's that? Pen and Teller. One of them is a big guy. The other guy's just a little scorner. He's kind of like Abbott, not uh, uh, um, uh, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, but um, uh, Penn and Teller, which one of them, he's got long hair, kind of a big guy. And he's on YouTube, and you should find it and listen to him say, I was just minding my own business, and this guy come up to me and hand me a Gideon Bible and tell me that I needed to get saved so I didn't go to hell. This guy gives his testimony. He says, I've never had anybody ever tell me that. I don't believe a word of it, but I respect a man who cared about my soul. And that is breathtaking. You know what that means? He listened to every word that that man who witnessed to him said. And you say, well, he would never get saved. All I know is, don't ever say, well, that person's wearing a 3,000 euro suit. I'll never be able to give him the gospel. That person is so wealthy. This person is so popular. I got to, um, uh, I got to speak very briefly about the same-sex marriage referendum. Nita and I went down to Castle Martyr, and um, uh, what's the name of the guy on, on, uh, radio, on radio One? Pat Kenny. And Pat Kenny was there, and he was as he's trying to be by, uh, by uh, be neutral, but he was slanted very much against anybody who's biblical. Anyway, right after it was all finished, queue up, everybody wanted to get a picture with him. I went up there; I was the last one in line, and I said, I, "I just want to tell you, you may not, you may never appreciate it right now, but one of these days you may need this gospel track. I want to tell you, I love you, and I I want you to know I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to read this because your soul depends upon it." You don't need to meet me. You don't need to talk to me, but you need to get born again. And he took the track. Now, why would I do that? Because I can believe anybody can get saved. And at least Zophar has that. He's looking at what he's calling a wicked man. He thinks Job is wicked, and he says, you know, Job, you can get converted. You Not saved, but you can get right with God. So he goes on, and he uses these words. He says, so Job, prepare your heart. I think this is cool. Because this, go to 1 Samuel 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'll get Scott to read this one. 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 3. <clears throat> I 
Prepare your hearts is a farming term. Did you ever work on a farm at all, at all? Hmm? Did they actually get you to toil the toil, uh, turn the soil? Okay. Preparing your hearts is a farming term, which means you soften the soil so that it can receive water and nutrients in the seed. And the heart needs to be softened in order for it to respond to the gospel. It means humbled. It means drop your guard, drop the shields and all of the defense, all the justification, and prepare your heart for what God has for you. It's a farming term. It's breathtaking. Go to 2 Chronicles, uh, Kim. 2 Chronicles 12 and 14. Find out, let's look at the opposite, where somebody didn't prepare their heart to seek the Lord. 2 Chronicles 12, 14. So why do some people end up doing wrong and evil? Why? When, when they could be, hey, we could be talking about someone who's in church, and yet as soon as they leave, they go and they do something wicked. How can that be? I thought church was a way to protect people from sin. I thought church was a place to go so that you didn't sin. And yet that tells you what is necessary so that you don't do evil. What is it? So let me, let me give you a little clue. Prepare your heart before you come to church. Have a quiet time with God. Humble yourself. Even though I'm a Texan, try and listen. Because when you prepare your heart, God will speak to you. I, as a pastor, I am supposed to make you a little bit uncomfortable. I'm supposed to help you break up the hard soil. Because I, my job is to get you to hear the Word of God. And so sometimes I have to say things and use examples and stuff for effect so that you go, I may be in trouble. I better listen. So prepare your heart. Go to 2 Chronicles 19.3. Marcus, 2 Chronicles 19.3. This is critical. Zophar is not wrong. He's just talking to the wrong guy. Second Chronicles 19.3, Marcus. <clears throat> okay, so he made a decision to humble himself and say, all right, God, speak, because I need you. All right, go back to Job. He says, so Job, you need to prepare your heart. Fourthly, you need to surrender back to God. Romans chapter 6, Brother Paul, Romans chapter 6, while he's going there, uh, let me read Job uh, 11. And he says, if thou, verse 13, prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him. Now, how many of you have seen a church where everybody's like this? 
Now, I have no problem with you raising your hands. I do have a problem with you like this. You know what that is? It's swinging, yeah. <laughs> it's performance. It's attention getting. But I tell you what, if the Bible is true and you all of a sudden feel the Spirit of God convicting you of sin or where you get excited and you just want to say, Lord, you win, hands go up because you're saying, hands up, he wins. That's the symbol of raising hands. And if churches got back to raising hands when they felt guilty, we'd have revival. Let's look at, uh, did I have you, Paul? You're in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. So, now that I'm under grace, should, should I be allowed to sin? Should I just go and do whatever I want and I get away with it? What do you think, Paul? Now that I'm under grace and the law doesn't have to tell me what's right and what's wrong, can I just go and live as I want? Or what does the Bible make sure I know before I understand grace? What does it emphatically say? No, no, no. Go back to the very beginning of the verse. It is not to have dominion over you. So if God has control of your life, sin won't. So Zophar is telling Job, let God be in dominion of your life. He, Zophar believes that Job has somehow got some secret sin going on, and, and, and God is not in charge of his life, but some secret sin. Now, there's plenty of people that you and I meet that probably that is true. On the outside, they seem so fine, they seem safe, but there's wickedness underneath the skin. And the first thing you need to tell them, you need to surrender to God and let God be in charge of your life again, not your mother, not your wife, not your, um, uh, uh, not your boss. Nobody should have dominion over you but God. Then he says, put any sin in you away. Let me read it. Uh, if, um, verse 14, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, throw it away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacle. What was a tabernacle? What was that word usually referring to? Was it the tabernacle? They didn't have the tabernacle of, of Israel at that point, did they? So what was the tabernacle, Eric? Okay, it was a tent. Okay, but this is, they didn't even have that then. He said, thy tabernacle. His what? Okay, my question is, what is that tabernacle? That he says, that Zophar is telling him, get sin out of thy tabernacle. Mm, no, out of his own house where he lived. That was a tent. He says, go into your house and look at things that don't belong. Because we do let things creep in. Hey, uh... What, what might be something that we ought to put away from our lives, from our thinking, from, from, our, from, from us? What, what might we put away if we're going to get right with God? Give me an example. I mean, I hope none of you have any idols sitting there looking at you in the morning. Huh? Hope you don't have an idol. If you do have an idol in your home, you should get rid of it. Amen. That ought to be first thing tonight. But besides that, what else are we going to say? Yeah, I would hate to go into somebody's house and see a whole rack of 18s. Amen. That'd be stuff to get out. 
Do you know, let me read Ephesians 4.25. Wherefore, putting away lying. Wow, I should put that away. Uh, Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses, brings them out in the open, and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Let me quickly run. Zophar promises restoration, verse 15. Again, he's speaking to Job as if Job is in need of getting right with God. Verse 15, he then speaks like Joel Osteen, all right? Then thou shalt lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery then, and remember it as waters that are passed away. Dita and I were at some place, we had this beautiful waterfall, I did not chart a drop all the way down it and then follow down there and hold on to it. Zophar is describing saying all of these sorrows will pass on like water down a river. And we won't remember them anymore. He goes on. Um, verse 17, And thine age shall be clearer than the noonday. <clears throat> thou shalt shine forth. Thou shalt be as the morning. And thou shalt be secure because there is hope now. Yea, Thou shalt die, dig about thee, and thou shalt take thy rest in safety. He's describing you'll be able to dig and farm, and you expand your house. You'll be able to build your wealth again. Verse 19, and thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee, as if to say, they'll come to thee for advice. So look at that list. God will cleanse you. You won't be ashamed anymore. You'll be anchored and movable, no longer afraid, running for your life. You'll forget your misery. Your age will grow brighter and brighter, not darker and darker. Some people, as they get older, they become more bitter. You'll be secure. You'll have hope. You'll expand your wealth. You'll, you'll sleep in safety. And many people will come to you again for advice. Now, hmm, restoration. You know, if only people realized that there is restoration. Amen. But so far, so far is painting a picture that you should not paint when you go soul winning. You know, if you get saved, all your problems will be gone. Is that true? No. Oh, if you come to our church, everybody will just, will always be there for you. <laughs> we'll try. No, no, no. If you get saved, your sins will be washed away. Amen. Your guilt will be gone, yes, but there's no guarantee of two more pennies coming into your pocket. As a matter of fact, all they that live godly shall what? Suffer persecution. Not only is it given unto you to believe on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on His name, but also to suffer for His sake. So Zophar promises restoration, but doesn't he go too far? So I'm telling you, when you look at some of this stuff, it's rubbing Job the wrong way. Now let's look at, let's learn from Zophar. Well, he makes one final thing. I got to say this, verse 20. He makes one final warning. He says, the eyes of the wicked shall fail. You'll go blind. They shall not escape, and their hope shall be as giving up of the ghost will die. So the wicked aren't going to ever experience any of that good stuff. They'll go blind. They'll not escape troubles, and all their hopes shall die. The problem is, you know what? I know a lot of wicked people who haven't gone blind yet. I know a lot of wicked people that don't seem to have troubles. I know a lot of people who live wickedly that all their hopes are coming true. Zophar is painting an out-of-balance picture. 
You make sure when you give the gospel, when you give people the truth, that you don't make it so that they want to get saved for the benefits. They want to get saved for the forgiveness and for the righteousness with God. So, what have we learned from Zophar's attack? Number one, people are often so quick, quick to speak for God. <laughs> you can ask an unsaved person about God and they'll talk about it for four hours. <laughs> Isn't everybody great at seeing everyone else's sins but not their own? I can tell you all about the problems with that. But I've only got two or three. You know how it is. Hurting people need something better than just judgmentalism. So be careful in your judgment. Jesus said this in John 7, 24. Judge not according to appearance. What does Job look like? What does Job look like? He has boils from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet. He has nothing, not two pennies to rub together. His lands, his houses, everything's destroyed. And what is Zophar doing? He's judging according to what he sees. And you know what? As Christian, we do not look at your wealth or your problems. We look at your soul. We care about, I don't care where you come from. I don't care where you've been. I care about you. And that's the Christian. So be careful. What are we often blind to? Uh, oh, I don't know why that's not in there. Uh, what are we often blind to? We're blind to the possibility that some people are going through demonic attacks. We're blind to the need of hurting people beyond a rebuke. Maybe they do need a rebuke. But do you have to be the one? And they're blind to their own self-righteousness. You know what? Some people just need to know you love them. Now, what they're into may be wrong, but man, I tell you what, if everybody just pounces on somebody doing wrong, it's probably not going to help. So be careful in your judgment. These friends are just like who? I said at the beginning, give me a New Testament classification. The Pharisees. The Pharisees. What did Jesus, he took them on, didn't he? Scribes, Pharisees, what did he call them all? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. There, there's that question. Uh, people usually understand how to get right with God, but are poor at doing it themselves. Would you agree with that? I mean, honestly, I'm talking about Christians usually understand how to get right with God, but they have never gotten right with themse themselves. Lastly, <clears throat> uh, two more points. Should we always say something when someone is hurting and questioning God? Okay, so here's, uh, here's Scott back there. Scott says, I don't believe in God anymore. I just, I quit church. I quit working. I just, I just give up. Well, should we all just, oh, there's some secret sin in your life. All right. You may not need to say anything. Probably if he gets to that conclusion, what can you pretty well say? He's going through a hard time. Amen? So I'm trying to give you a wisdom here. That we don't get in normal preaching. We'll get it through the book of Job. Last thing. Do you remember Zophar's pattern for how to get right with God? I tell you, it's a pretty good pattern. It's a little modification. Don't promote all the good reasons that happen when you get restored with God. But, hey, admit that you're a sinner. Anyone can get right with God. Prepare your heart by repenting and then surrender to God. Call on His name. And whatever sins your life, whatever he tells you to put away, put it away and follow Jesus Christ.
You couldn't beat a Christian given that kind of a gospel. Father, thank you for even harsh people like Zophar because we can learn from their abuse and their extreme. And you know, it's kind of scary. A lot of what Zophar said, and a lot of what that Bildad and Eliphaz say is right. Boy, do they say it wrong. Boy, do they ignore the bigger need in their friend. I just ask that God that I would be a better friend than these guys. And with all of their precision in, in, in theology and in doctrine, they forgot about grace. They forgot about just sitting there and weeping, and just keeping their mouths shut. So Lord, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you. This is the book of books. No other book ever speaks like this and challenges us. And I thank you that we get to, um, to ponder it. We'll never understand it. And truly, we have, not, we have not received half of what we deserve when it comes to the troubles in our life. You have been very gracious to us, been very merciful. Lord, we want to thank you for it. So Lord, help us to hear the heart of, of Job as he's being hurt by this guy and say, make me a better friend in Jesus' name. Amen.